everybody. Uh, Dr. Rick Wallace, uh, Dr. Michael Blanchard. Uh, this is our first segment of uh, The Teachers. The Teachers. The Teachers. And we're dropping in to share with you uh, what we have spent a lifetime uh, accumulating and acquiring in the way of knowledge, in the way of wisdom, in the way of strategy and protocols. And we have learned from the best uh, so that we can help nurture and create the best. Um, uh, this is going to be something we're going to do every week. I'm excited about it. And before we give you the, uh, the format of how we're going to do every show, for those who are unaware, who haven't met uh, Dr. Blanchard, who has definitely been on the Black Voice uh, YouTube channel before, uh, but just in case, I'm going to let him introduce himself. He's someone that I've known for years now. Uh, he had, he was actually the conduit through which I connected with uh, Neota Yurora, who has been highly instrumental in uh, helping to expand my reach uh, and is the brilliant mind behind Alt Black Media, uh, which I'm a part of. Dr. Blanche is a part of as well. Uh, I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about himself, then I'll tell you what I, 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 I know about him and why I'm excited to be working with him. And then I'm going to give you the layout of the show and we're going to get right into it. So, Doc, tell them about yourself. Hey, how's everybody doing? I'm Dr. Michael Blanchard. And um, my background is primarily uh, 36 years of combined experience in education and uh, law enforcement. Uh, my specialty is wraparound services and uh, black empowerment. Uh, programs. I work with a lot of uh, non-for-profit organizations. Well, I don't want to say non-for-profit. Let's say grassroots organizations, not non-for-profits. Right. right. Uh, that's primarily what I do. I met Dr. Rick uh, in 2013, as well as NIOTA uh, in 2013. I started following them and uh, reached out to them uh, soon after, you know, kind of vetted them because uh, we have a lot of people out, out in our community that are doing really good work and you have to differentiate between the ones that are uh, using uh, using the uh, using it as a hustle compared to actually being out there trying to help our people. So that's just a little bit about me. Uh, Dr. Rick and I kind of bounce off of one another. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a man of fewer words than him, but, uh, but, but you can't have two people on the show that like to like to talk. So this is <laughs> a good, this is a good pairing, I think for both of us. Right, right, right. And I think actually what's what's crazy about it, as a person that really loves to talk, one of the things I enjoyed, uh, for those of you who didn't catch it, uh, I had a chance to sit down with someone that I admire and have followed for quite some time. And Dr. Uh, Blanchard is also extremely familiar with Dr. Cleo Monago. Absolutely. I'm a uh, big fan of his and I've been following yeah. him for a long time. And uh, filmmaker Tony Lindsay decided to pull the two of us together. Right. And uh, we said, I don't powerful show. I we had a conversation and I actually, you know, got a chance to really defer a lot. Uh, and so I don't have a problem deferring. What happens normally is I'll defer and it comes right back to me. You right. know, uh, I've, you know, I've done shows for, for a very long time. And what will happen is I'll throw it in somebody's court and they'll say two words and then throw it back in mine. Right, I'm right, like, right, OK, right. I'll take it and run with it. You ain't got to tell right, me right, twice. Right. But uh, I, I definitely want, uh, 
you guys to really understand, like I said, uh, we met, man, almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, almost 10 years ago. And we, when we say iron sharpens iron, that's exactly what we're talking about. That's exactly what we mean. Uh, minds coming together with a knowledge and an understanding of what's going on and really putting things out there. And the beautiful thing about our friendship and our professional relationship is that it is made up and put together in a way of how I want to see us operate. And that is, we don't have to agree all the time. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that I, there's this idea out there. I don't agree with something you say, we can't work together. And that's created a great deal of disunity, a whole lot of beefing uh, between people who should be working together. And uh, I really, really want to do that. So how we're going to really do this is there are going to be three primary segments in every show. And let me turn this down. Uh, the first one is going to be our rapid fire session. That's how we're going to kick off every show every week. And it's going to be several topics. And we're going to talk about each topic for about a minute or so. And we're going to move on to the next one. Then we're going to get into the meat of the discussion. Uh, today's core topic is the feminization of the black male image. Uh, something that Dr. Uh, Blanchett will tell you I'm extremely passionate about. I've written about it so much that it just flows when I get to talking about it. It's one of those things. And then we're going to have uh, a chance for you guys to interact where we're going to have Ask the Doc uh, at the end. And for the final 10 minutes of each episode, you get to ask us questions uh, and we'll do the best we can to answer them. Um, and we're going to do it like that. So we're going to get ready to kick, kick off rapid fire. Uh, Doc, I'm going to let you start with the first one. And that is right now we are coming off the heels of a week where we saw uh, singer producer R. Kelly convicted on multiple charges. Um, uh, and they use RICO stats statutes to get in because a lot of the stuff that he was accused of, the statute of limitations had, had, had passed, so they used the RICO statutes. And so, there's a lot of stuff going around, and there's a lot of different angles to look at this. And my, I guess, my question is to kick this thing off. Uh, what is your particular perspective on what has happened and how you view it? Because uh, there's so many different ways to view it. You view it as a man. You view it as a connoisseur of music. You view it as a father of daughters. Yeah. And and you view it as a black man. Right, right. And each one of those is going to give you a different insight into how you deal with it. So, right. you know, what's your take on it? Well, I kind of view it... Uh from the perspective of uh, Dr. Curry, which uh, he kind of looked at it from the perspective of him being a victim because he was a victim of molestation growing up. And that definitely led to uh, some of his behavior. So I kind of look at it from that perspective and it's not to uh, exonerate him or excuse his behavior, but uh, it's just to put a focus on uh, the fact that we do have a lot of uh, black males that are never seen as victims. And uh, you can speak more about that because you've actually done research similar to uh, Dr. Curry's. Uh, but that's how I view it. I don't view it as, as the other thing that bothers me is that um, so many times we're made the, uh, the face of, of, of a particular crime, you know? And that, that kind of bothers me that he's now the face of, 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 of uh, molestation and, and, and uh, 
abusing women. So uh, that's kind of my take on it. My my take, uh, I think, is a little more extreme, and uh, it's probably to be expected if you anyone who knows me, uh, you know. N- not that I'm telling anybody what to do, but I stopped listening to Dude's music quite a while ago, and I was uh, one of his biggest fans, um, and his music took a different sort of approach to me because I started applying it to the life he was living. I'm going like, what is he writing about? You know, I took it initially as this grown folks music. Right. Then I started going, wait a minute, dude's writing about stuff that might not be. And I'm, I'm the kind of person that it's easy to accuse somebody of something. So when somebody gets accused of something, I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, let me see what's going on. So for a long time, you know, number one is I never saw the tape that started all this. Uh, because to me, that was child pornography. If the person in that tape was 14 years old, then, you know, hey, if I, I watch it, I'm watching a 14 year old being exploited. That's child pornography. So I didn't want to see it. I had to listen to what everybody else said. And, you know, most people were saying it was him. I said, okay. Then uh, he kind of got a reprieve with me because his first trial ended with him not being convicted. So then I'm going, okay, well, if they couldn't get him, then where's the real evidence? You know, because, you know, normally they take every chance they can get to get a black man. But then too many things start lining up and I start saying, "Okay, wait a minute. Can it be possible that when a man with money has one person come out and say something happened that a bunch of people try to jump on the bandwagon? Yeah, we've seen that happen before. But these stories sound eerily similar. So I I started saying, man, I'm going to back off. I don't want to listen to the music anymore. And. Here's my thing, though. At the same time, I don't want to listen to the music anymore. I'm not real big on hearing excuses. I'm real big on saying, okay, what are we going to do about the fact that he was a victim? Doesn't excuse anything because at some point I tell all of my clients, look, I know what you've been through. And I deal with victims. I deal with male and female who were victims of childhood sexual abuse. I deal with them. This is what I do for a living. I deal with people who deal with coming out of trauma. So I know what it is. I say, but I tell them all, you're an adult now. The person who harmed you may never come back and say they're sorry. And you holding on to it is the equivalent of taking poison and hoping that somebody else dies. You're going to have to come out of that. Now, the truth of the matter is, this is what we need to understand. And, you know, I have a great deal of respect for Dr. Uh, Tommy J. Curry and the work he does. I think it's really instrumental and necessary because we don't see the suffering of black men Uh, and black men don't feel safe in saying what they're going through. That's the truth. Uh, But the whole thing is, and, and having done that, is we have an entire culture in the black community of an elephant in the room. And the elephant is we got uncles and cousins and brothers, you know, that are exploiting our babies, male and female. And I think that we talk about the women all the time, but we don't talk about the men. So I get that. But so we need to talk about that. My thing is, with that being said, I think you have to be accountable for what you've done. Again, I'm one of those people saying if he wasn't enabled from the beginning, Maybe we don't get to this point, but because he had money, 
he was able to mask a lot of things and get a lot of people involved with it. And for what I understand, a lot more people are going to have to pay the piper. Hmm. Uh, not in that federal case, but when it goes to uh, the Northern District of Illinois, that next case that's coming up, if it goes to trial, there are a bunch of other people who are going to be co-indicted, uh, from what I understand. And I heard that that case is even stronger than the case he just had. Mm-hmm. And so now he's going to have to make a decision on whether or not, um, you know, he wants to even take it to trial. Uh, if he wants to try to work out some deal and kind of get all that stuff running concurrent or whatever. Right. My whole thing is if he's re- if, if, it's, if, if, if there's anything redeemable, I would like to see it happen. That's just me. You know, I would like to see it. If there's something redeemable there, I want to see it happen. And it's going to require putting him in a place where he doesn't have control for him to face his demons. Mm-hmm. So, but it's like, do I want to see him hit forever? No. But do I want him exposed to where he can continue to cause harm until he's, till he's healed? Uh, no. Um, and there's so much going on, but what probably bothered me the most, and I know I've gone over, what probably bothered me the most is all the people that came up talking about what about, uh, Elvis, what about uh, Tommy Lee, whatever, uh, his uh, the other guy back in back in the day who yeah. messed around with his underage cousin? Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't think of his name now. Well, there, there are numerous examples, but. right? Numerous examples of non blacks, let's say Europeans or uh, whites that got, did it and nobody said anything. And my problem with that argument is. When are we going to stop measuring ourselves by a morally bereft people? Absolutely. And my thing is, I, I I don't care what they got away with. That's not how I want to be. I don't want to sit up and be. And I tell people all the time, the moment you start a defense of a person by saying, what about? Then you've already lost me. Jerry Lee Lewis. Thank you. Thank you. That's who it was. Jerry Lee Lewis. Once you start talking about that, my whole thing is, yes, they get away with things, but the whole point of us being black men, and you know this, having been in law enforcement, you know this, that you grow up knowing you don't get the same cards that they get. So when you play the game and you're trying to play like you got their hand and then you get caught and they call your bluff on the table and now you got to show your hand, you're going to get hit harder than they get hit. It's their table. Absolutely. So that's the whole part in that. But so we'll actually probably be talking about that because it's going to be an ongoing thing. The other thing is censorship. We're seeing a lot of that. And uh, what we're saying on social media, that's one of the reasons why what we're doing with Neota with all black media is so huge is because eventually that's all we're going to have because they're going to push us off Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. You know, did you know, yeah, it's, it's already happening where, you know, no longer, you know, when the Internet came about, we all were glad and Facebook and MySpace and all the older uh, versions of it. You know, we viewed it as an open exchange of ideas you know, and let the let the ideological battle be fought in the public square. And that uh, that, that that's no longer happening, you know. Um, so I agree with you. I, and and. I think we share the same uh, ideology and that I may totally disagree with everything you stand for, but I would rather have that uh, ideology put out there and have us evaluate it 
than to just shut you down and say, you know, no, uh, there's no place for your, your view here. Now, we have to look at it from the black perspective as does what you're saying or doing serve black interests? And I think that's where we talked a little bit earlier, where you talked about the battles that are occurring. Those that's what the battle is about is what you're saying and what you represent. And are your actions serving the best interests of black people? If it's not, then you should be called out, but not shut down or shut out. But you should be called out and should be exposed. Um, somebody's on here. Uh, there's an ignorant person on here, uh, and I'm going to call them out for what they are. An ignorant person says, you're not doctors. Doctors, uh, doctors don't wear hip hop clothes like kids in Yankee caps. It shows ignorance. Normally I would just block them. Uh, but it, uh, it shows ignorance and not knowing what happens. It also shows an acclimation. Dr. Cleo and I just got through talking about uh, the need to break the chains to uh, uh, the psychological chains to uh, be compliant and consistent with whiteness. Someone told you that doctors or people who hold PhDs have to walk around in suits and ties. And all of a sudden, that's how you're judging us. Not by the work we did. I've authored 24 books on my 25th book. I've sat down and actually worked with this guy when he went through his doctoral program and did, did his work. I've been vetted by several networks who have validated my work and actually sit up and acknowledge me. I'll actually be on one of those networks. And then somebody comes on and actually shows how ignorant they are. We know they haven't been part of the system. They haven't gone through academic education. You know what? There you go. They're gone. You know. <laughs> hey, Doc, I got some uh, bow ties you can borrow, you know. You know, hey, you know I've been, I'm, I'm who I am. Right. You know. I let my work speak for me. One thing my grandmother told me a long time ago, and I, I, I kind of knew things were like this was coming on because everybody want to force you in the box that the white person created. Right. And so something my grandmother told me a long time ago is let the life that you live speak for you. So the life that I did, the work that I've done speaks for me. So I have my body of work that speaks for me. Absolutely. And so here comes somebody that obviously doesn't have a clue about academia because I know a bunch of people. Shoot, Doctor, uh, what is uh, Doctor Curry's homeboy that 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 has the YouTube channel? Uh, you know what I'm talking about. I think his last name Johnson. I'm not sure. Oh man, he's a he's a doctor and he's got dreads and oh, Doctor uh, T, Doctor T. Uh, oh shoot, what is it? I know you, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. T. Hassan Johnson. T. Hassan Johnson, yeah. All right, yeah. Yeah, so T. Hassan Johnson, dreads, right. everything he else. The, he wouldn't fit the description. Right? He wouldn't fit the description either. I can go on and on and on about colleagues that I've worked with that don't fit that description. Right. One thing my mentor told me a long time ago is, he who has the gold makes the rules. Well, I went out and got the gold so nobody could tell me what to do. And we talk about the fact that I get to operate off of the plantation. 
Right. And so since I'm, a, I'm not on the plantation, I don't have to do what nobody tells me to do. I don't have to dress like nobody tells me to dress. Right, right. I do this and I show up every day and I handle my clients. So, but uh, it, it amazed me, you know, I tried to address it, but they just, you know, wanted to come on and be stupid. So they're gone. And that can happen to anybody. I don't mind being challenged. You don't have to agree with me, but you right. will be respectful when you come onto this channel. I will respect you, but the moment you become disrespectful, you will disappear. But on to that censorship thing, um, it's crazy. Did you realize that uh, uh, did you realize that uh, Instagram has actually uh, banned the hashtag natural immunity? Mm, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, and, and, and so that's what we're what we're up against. So just some things we need to look at. Another thing, real quick, is, uh, and again, it's it's important for the people watching this to know we haven't sit up and discussed a lot of this stuff. So when I'm I'm putting these topics out there, we could actually end up on the diff on two different sides of uh, the discussion, and that's still cool. We've done that before, and that's what makes our relationship authentic. Is neither one of us a yes man to the other one. Uh, but this one popped up, and I think you remember how I feel about this one. But I'm going to bring it out and let you talk about it, uh, and I'll kind of maybe weigh in, maybe. But uh, I want to get to the real topic. But here we go. Uh, last last rapid-fire subject. Mark Lamont Hill announced earlier this week that he had had a heart attack. Uh, and it was based off of the fact that he... Uh, had some blood clots in his lung that had completely almost blocked all the flow, which led to the heart attack. Right. And we, we, we're not going to get into the, the fact that he was completely uh, vaccinated and, and, and uh, that, that, that whatever. We're not going to get into that. Right. What we are going to talk about is there are some of the people, like I know Dr. Boyce Watkins weighed in and says no matter how he feels about him, he wishes him a speedy recovery, you know. Uh, oh yeah, I feel the same way too, Doc. I mean, right. you know, um, I, I uh, you know, Doctor Hill is a fraternity brother of mine. He's a Kappa, and uh, and that's fine. But um, he was on the wrong side of the fence, though. I think when he allowed, um, uh, you know, the uh, powers that be to decide who his friends and who his foes were, you know, when he was asked to. Uh, denounce uh, Minister Farrakhan and, and, and some others. And so, uh, and he was on the wrong side of a, a few other things. Dr. Francis Cress-Welsing, I think, as well. That, that really bothered me because those are, are icons and uh, people that have been out there uh, fighting for uh, Black liberation uh, before you and I were even born. Right. So uh, that bothered me. Uh, but again, uh, you know, I wish him a speedy recovery. It also places the focus back on black males. Uh, I don't know whether you've taken account, but I know since COVID, I have lost a lot of high school and college uh, uh, classmates of mine that are in that age between uh, 45 and 55. So it also gives us an opportunity to focus on holistic health. And I hope that, uh, you know, your diet, your exercise, your mental and spiritual health and I'm hoping that uh, that will be also be one of the topics where we can have someone come on, maybe uh, Sister Lateva, or I have a, another uh, uh, person down here called the Juice Guru, 
uh, who basically makes holistic juices, you know, will, will counsel you and is, is well-versed in Eastern medicine and basically can look at what kind of problems you're having and, and fix you a natural juice to, to actually, uh, you know, boost your immune system and fight those, uh, those, those uh, diseases like a high blood pressure and, uh, and others. Um, so that's kind of what I'm looking at as far as uh, Dr. Lamont, you know, he, hopefully he has a uh, speedy recovery. And, and again, we focus on not only the health of black men, but, but, but black women as well, uh, because we're losing a lot of people that uh, have these underlying conditions and, and we're losing them, uh, you know, once they uh, uh, get uh, COVID, we seem to be losing them, you know, and I, I can't speak to whether all of these people that uh, I know is at least 10, that I went to school with, I can't speak to whether they were vaccinated or not. And I don't want to even go down that slippery slope, but, right. but we are losing people. Right. I, I agree. And my, my thing is the same way. I, I, anybody who's followed me for any amount of time, no, I went directly at Mark Lamont Hill when he decided to come after Dr. Welsing after she transitioned yeah. uh, because of probably because of her stance against homosexuality which is something kind of what we're going to ask. Some of that is what we're going to talk about. Not him, but the feminization of the black male image. Uh, but he decided to do that like literally the day after she transitioned is to come for her. Again, uh, being uh, you know convinced to denounce uh, his stance or his support of Minister Farrakhan. And just some things that he said and done that shows his position as far as how he feels about the black man in general, uh, I think are questionable, but at the same point in time, I don't send negative energy uh, when at all possible. The only time I meet someone with negative force is if they are directly in my path or they are coming to knock me off my path, then I do what I have to do to make sure I keep my, my position. So if I see you as an enemy and you're moving, I treat you as such. But as far as taking time to wish somebody harm, especially someone who's had heart attacks, uh, as myself, uh, I wish him a speedy recovery because at some point in time, maybe we can sit on the same stage and we can have a conversation about our different viewpoints. And who knows, we may learn something from me, from one another. Uh, so that that was that. Now we're moving into the meat of the matter. The feminization of the black male image. And I want to clarify what this means. A lot of time when you start talking about uh, the feminization of the black male image, the first thing that pops into people's mind is uh, black male homosexuality. That's a small part of it. When I talk about the feminization of the black male image, I'm actually talking about the feminization of the heterosexual black male, uh, putting uh, straight men in dresses, uh, doing things to present a docile straight man, a compliant uh, and complacent and docile straight man, a, a, a black man that doesn't have a backbone, a black man that's looking for a woman to carry him, mm -hmm. uh, feminine traits in a heterosexual black man. Can, can the use of uh, a homosexual image uh, contribute to it? Yes. But when I talk about it, I'm talking about all the things that, you know, something that was so powerful and pushed so heavily that Dave Chappelle walked away from $50 million contract because it was being pushed on him so heavily. 
and was gone for a while and just pretty much walked back in. Uh, and uh, I mean, I've seen everybody from Tay Diggs in makeup and dresses. And in, in entertainment, our guys, only person I haven't seen that I can think of is Denzel, Dave Chappelle, and there may be a couple of others, uh, you know, but, you yeah, know. We had a picture of uh, Nick Cannon, what, a few weeks ago. Remember that picture that he, he he said it wasn't him, but it certainly looked like him. Yeah. yeah. And, and so my whole thing is, how do you see this and how do you see it as an attack on black manhood? And to me, I see it also as an attack on uh, the black family. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that. I mean, I, before you even uh, talked about this, I have been noticing it in the past year. I mean, as you look at the commercials, uh, as you look at the TV programs, there seems to be an emphasis on uh, the promotion of, of docile black males, soft, weak, uh, non-masculine uh, black males, you know, uh, in the workplace. I know you, you're off the plantation. I'm not. But I can, you know, in the past 10 years, I've also seen the promotion of non-black uh, masculine males in, in, in the workplace where uh, they're seen as non-threatening, you know, and I think that seems to be what it is. I mean, it seems that they're they're promoting this because I believe that they see this as non-threatening and they may see some of us who would consider ourselves masculine males uh, to be to be threatening. Right. And uh, I do want to uh, uh, make this point. Because uh, I said so has said, matter of fact, let me just put it up here on the screen so everybody can see it, says that Dave Chappelle wore a dress in men in tights. Uh, well, obviously, I didn't see men in tights. That's not something that would have caught my attention and I would have watched. Uh, so I didn't see it. But if, if he was, then we have to take him off the list. Now we're down to Denzel and maybe um, Margaret Freeman. I know uh, it depends on if you count if you count a kilt, a real actual kilt, then we have to put we have to put Samuel L. Jackson in there, too, because I've seen him in a kilt before. Right. 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 Uh, and being that he's not Irish. Uh you know, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, I've never even seen men in tights, but like, like you know, if, if you've seen it, I guess uh, he was in there. But I know that he would, he uh, he had fought hard not to put that dress on. And what's the whatever movie that was he did with uh, Martin? Uh, but I know he, they were he was saying that they were really trying to put it in him, and that's one of the reasons he had uh, went off. But anyway, the point is. Uh, the argument will come across because we're always uh, measuring ourselves by what they do and what they're able to get away with. Well, there have been white men in dress. Well, here's the difference with that. There are 1.5 million white men missing in the white community. Also, white men created the power system. So white men are at the helm. So white men control access. White men control what happens. White men have never truly been uh, white men's dominance as alphas and, and 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 power forces have never been their strong suit anyway. They've always been able to finagle. They didn't go in and by force take Africa. They went in through deception and took Africa. So deception is their trick. So they don't have to have the ability to stand up. Their money speaks for them. 
their women follow them because of what they can provide economically, politically, socioeconomically, and power. We have to be able to present something to our women that says you're safe with us. They're not going to look at the feminized version of us and feel safe. They will not follow the feminized version of a black man. Look at, they'll befriend you. <coughs> Excuse me. They'll befriend you. They'll kick it with you. They'll call you buddy, buddy and party with you, but they will not trust you to lead them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and then you have to even look at the words and the language. They started an attack on black male masculinity primarily, but masculinity in general. And they they did that by starting the term toxic masculinity. Right. Okay. Well, the things that you look at that are considered toxic masculinity have actually nothing to do with masculinity and everything to do with toxic behavior and dysfunction. But we're going to lump it in the category of masculinity so that we can attack masculinity. If you look at it now, stuff that's not actually natural and necessary at, in the history of manhood, little boys roughhousing is now considered an infraction and you can get in trouble and actually kicked out of school for it. And they don't want to see it. They want to stop it on every level. They need to stop that. No, that's the natural instinct. If you watch any other animal, the little youngins are play fighting. Why? They're developing their skills to do what they're going to have to do to survive. When you see little boys, and that's why little boys do what they do, and normally little girls don't do that. Why? Because instinctively, they are two different roles. And they know their roles when they first emerge. Society is pushing different roles on them and confusing them and telling them, no, this is what you should be doing. But naturally, they're going to come out and they're going to start uh, roughhousing with one another. What are they doing? They're learning how to fight to defend. Now, what happens is, in many instances, they've turned that, uh, the society has helped turn that aggression in toward the very ones they're supposed to be defending. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have that. So my, my look at it is, we have to understand, and now here's the problem. When you attack black masculinity, you don't just attack black masculinity. You attack the black family. Because without black masculinity, you can't build a black family. Absolutely. If without a black family, you can't inculcate the values, interests, and principles that lead to black empowerment. Why? Because that's where you do it. You inculcate that into a child before a child could ever even be exposed to the real world. They already know who they are. They already know what's expected of them. They already know what they're facing. They already know how to deal with it. Why? Because as little kids, they grew up in an environment that told them who they was, what what was expected of them, and how to operate. So when you ta- when you attack the black male image and then you feminize it, you take the masculinity away. What what happens when you feminize it? You make them docile. What does that mean? They won't stand for anything. And it was Dr. King who said, "A man that does not have something for which he is willing to die is not fit to live." Right. What you wind up doing is is you wind up eliminating the warrior class of our people. That's what you wind up doing. You know. Because there are warriors and then, you know, people fight in different ways. You know, we have a warrior class that is confrontational and at every at every step of the way. And if you eliminate them, then, uh, you know, it's just not a good thing. And like I said, also with the family, you, you brought up a good point. Um, anything that is 
anti the black family anything that does not promote a healthy environment a healthy community communities uh are made up of families if you don't have families you don't have community and we you know and, and we have a very dysfunctional community at this time so uh anything that is against the building of strong healthy economically mentally healthy uh communities i don't know how we can be for anything you know whether it's drug dealing whether it's you know whatever it is it has to be in the best interest of, of promoting and creating healthy communities with strong, vibrant businesses, our own schools, our own hospitals, and, you know, and that's a whole nother a show, but that that's what we have to be about. Uh, real quick, someone said Eddie Murphy never wore a dress. Uh, and somebody followed that with, did you forget Big Mama? Big Mama was actually Martin Lawrence, but the clumps, uh, Eddie wore a dress in a couple of characters. Right, right. Uh, right. Now, it wasn't. Lady, yeah. He, he played his mother and his grandmother right, right. in that. Uh, and so that is, you know, uh, one of those things. And so, you, like I said, you got to really look. I mean, even people who you look at kind of hardcore, like Wesley Snipes uh, to Wong Fu wore a dress. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so you go and you say, man, you know, uh, like I haven't I haven't in, seen uh, Michael J. White. In, in a dress, uh, but you wouldn't c consider him an A-lister. Right. Right. So, you know, you know, uh, but uh, Tay Diggs went all out, fingernails, lipstick, makeup, the whole nine. Yeah, right. And everybody says that, okay, it's just acting. That's the same way they get you with propaganda and almost everything. It's just entertainment. Well, no. See, what happens is with the entertainment, you're presenting an image. Who do kids aspire to be? The celebrities they see more than anything else. That's a problem because they should be aspiring to be their mom and their dad, their uncles, the people in their closer periphery who are doing it the right way, who are achieving things. But what happens is the media has presented images that are so out there. And then they, what happens is they dress them up with success. They celebrate them. Everybody wants to be acknowledged. Everybody wants to be celebrated. So you tend to gravitate towards what you see celebrate. They celebrate athletes. Even the drug dealer is celebrated and given a sense of praise in the hood for what he has and what he does, despite the fact that he's destroying the hood, destroying the family, tearing up the family. But so you aspire to be entertainers, whether it's rappers, uh, singers, whatever. You aspire that. And you, then you develop a mindset that if I grow up in poverty, if I grow up in poverty, the only thing that I could ever do to get out of poverty is one of three things. Either I am a an entertainer, an athlete, or a criminal. I couldn't possibly be a lawyer. I couldn't possibly become a doctor. I couldn't possibly become a business owner because nobody's presenting that. It's not a part of the narrative of the media. It's not being taught in schools because they're not trying to prepare you to be self-sufficient. They're preparing you to plug you into places where they benefit from you more than you benefit from them. Absolutely. And so, in other words, what we have to have is a strong black male presence, first and foremost, in the home. Family first. Black first, family first, that way. First, that's people ask me all the time. Uh, you know, you you tend to put a lot of energy into the way you love your wife. 
So do you see yourself as a husband first? No, I see myself as a black man first and foremost in everything. Everything that flows out of it. After being a black man, I became a black father, black husband. But I'm a black man. You can strip everything away from me. My marriage, you can, you know, uh, God forbid with all the kids I have that happening, but you can take all my kids, but I'll still be a black man. And if I'm a strong enough black man, you stripped all of that away from me, I'll get it again. Right. So first, before I can be a good husband, I have to be a good black man. Why? Because I have to be able to be strong enough in my presence to let my wife shine and not be intimidated by her. And you know what that's like because you have a, a, a wife who's highly educated and a professional. Absolutely. So if I don't know who I am, if I don't know who I am and I am studied buying into the notions of what mainstream says I am, and then I walk in and align with a black woman who knows who she is, and she's on her game, I'm immediately intimidated by her. Right. I'm immediately looking for ways to pull her down to my level so I feel comfortable. So instead of being what I should be, her covering, right. I'm supposed to be her spiritual covering, her physical covering, her emotional covering. I'm supposed to be the one that comes in and say, look, because I'm here now, you can shine. Why? Because ain't nobody finna mess with you. Do your thing. I got you. And then what does she do? She comes in and leans into me and says, when you're weak, just lean over this way. When you go out there and you're fighting the wars that only black men have to fight, lean into me. I've got you. I'm here. And then she takes her spiritual wound. And she says, what's that vision you have? Give it to me. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but my one of my old mentors taught me this. Bless his heart. He's gone now. Dr. Miles Monroe. But he stood up there. He said, you ever notice that a woman is an incubator? Says, you ever notice whatever you give a woman, it never comes back to you the way you gave it to her? Mm. Say, if you give her groceries, she gives you a meal. Says, if you plant your seed in her, 40 weeks later, she brings you back a child. Say, if you give her a house, she turns it into a home. He said, and if you give her your dream, she'll put it in her spiritual womb and she'll birth it. It is, and, and, and if you've never had a woman like that, you can't understand what that means because we've been taught we are self-made men. So everything is about, I don't need nobody. But I'm telling you, it's nothing like a woman that can sit up and say, when you hear her say, you got it. You can do it. I believe. And if you are, if you are aspiring for something great, you have those moments where the world is crushing on you so heavy, you'll start questioning yourself. But she'll be right there. No, we got it. Oh, yeah. And then she'll tell you, don't worry about that. I got this. You just go do that. You just go do that. So you've got to sit up. Uh, oh, man, they talking about some good stuff on here. They talking about the fact that Billy Porter is. Uh, he, did you see the fact that this dude is the, the fairy godmother in some version of what? Yeah. Cinderella or something? <laughs> I did see that. And I'm like. But they're pushing it and, 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 and they're selling it. And the whole thing is, how do we get here? The media. People don't get the power of the media. You and I are both old enough to know and remember a time when 
90% of the stuff that we see on mainstream media, you can just turn your TV on and see 90% of that uh, wasn't on there. Right. I remember a time that if you walked by the TV and heard ass, you didn't say nothing but your mouth dropped right. and you worried about whether you're going to get in trouble. You didn't say it. Right. I remember but, when we had three stations. Remember we had NBC, ABC, and CBS. CBS. And that was it. And then after 11 o'clock news, that was it. There was nothing on yeah. the rest of the night till the morning. Right. They, they would come on and they would start playing the uh, – uh, Star Spangled Banner. Next thing you know, that's this little screen with a little right. round circle in it, that and it's on. Sound. Yeah, that buzzing sound. But yeah, and you got that buzzing sound until the morning, next o'clock, six o'clock a.m., and here we go, we're back on. And now it's twenty four seven, just constant, constant, constant barrage of stimuli and content that is setting the norm. And what didn't used to be normal is now norm. And it's setting the state of our what's called your norms and your standards, what your conscious will accept and what your conscious will dismiss is shifting right before and, us. And you know what? Not only that, uh, to even talk about the feminization of black, the black male image, this topic is seen out of bounds. Uh, it's seen as uh, something wrong. It's seen as, uh, uh, you know, you professionally, you can suffer from even just talking about it. Oh, but, yeah, I have but, but at 55, Doc, I've told you, I got seven more years to work on the plantation. And at this point, if you can't stand up and be a man at 55, when can you do it? So, you know, I say whatever I have to say now and, you know, let the cards fall where they may, you know. And, and, and like I said, you know, we've, we've had that conversation, too, about being on the uh, plantation and not being on the plantation. And, you know, I don't use that terminology a lot. You and I can use it together because we know each other and we respect each other. But I don't use it a lot because I don't want to insult anyone. You got to do what you got to do to feed your family. Right. And not everybody is prepared to be business owners. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have, quote, unquote, been off the plantation pretty much all my life. Right. And I was lucky enough to do that one way or another. And the few times that I had to step back in and try to do it, couldn't do it because I can't shut up. Right. I'm going to say exactly what I feel. And normally that's like, okay, you need to go. Because we're going to have everybody else in here turned up. Yep, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to speak my mind. And I've lost some real good friends. Uh, uh, some real good friends. And I've lost some clients. I lost one of my biggest clients in the UK. Uh my, my, my company, uh, Myriad Business Solutions, did all of their uh, descriptions. It was a company called First Choice Lighting. I wrote all the descriptions and did all of the, the advertising, wrote all the descriptions for their online products. Mm -hmm. So if you went to their site, what the description and all that, my company did that. And I had with them for a while. And they came across or someone brought to their attention that the Black Voice channel, but it was a channel before the one now. Uh, that was up to like 20,000 something subscribers. And they had found what I was saying. It was like, hey, you know, we understand where you're at. And it's not that we don't agree with you, but uh, we have clientele that probably won't take to, you know, kindly to some of the rhetoric and what else. And we just asking that you tone it down a little bit. I'm, saying, I'm not, I'm not toning down anything. I'm not, you, Doc, you know me. 
Right. I, I, I'm not toning down. Jack. You you a hundred proof, my brother. I know that. I, I, I'm not toning Jack. And so they said, well, what we'll have to do is we'll have to break away. I said, look, I've enjoyed working with you. It has been a great honor. I thank you for the opportunity and everything like that. And at this time, this is like my second largest client, close to being my largest client, and probably could have become my largest client if I'd have kept taking more and more responsibilities. But I said, hey, you do what you got to do because I damn sure going to do what I got to do. I'm going to speak for my people. My people depend on me not to fold. One of the problems we've had consistently, and again, this is because of the feminization and the emasculation of black men, is when we need to stand up, we don't stand up. Why? Because we depend too much on the people we're supposed to be standing up against to eat. Right. When, when the people that you need to be moving against are the people that are feeding you. Absolutely. How hard can you really stand up? Now, that's the thing we've got to look at because we have far more people that are in that situation than not. Right. And I dare not look down on them. I dare not look at like I see certain people going on and talking down on people. You know, you sitting up there every day. And, no, 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 no. Feed your family. Do what you got to do. But my only thing when I'm talking to people, when I'm speaking, when I'm lecturing, or even when I'm working with a client, client, my thing is this. Go to work. Put your eight hours in and do the best job you can. Don't, don't show up and have do it. Let your character and your work ethic shine. But don't you dare go home after that and shut down. Right. Work on your vision and your dream harder than you work on theirs. Absolutely. That's my only thing. If you are not yet off of what, what you call the plantation, that's okay. Have a plan. What's your plan for getting off the plantation? Absolutely. Then work that plan because I'll tell you, and you and I have had this conversation, and you'll be talking about, Doc, I'm working on getting off that plantation, and I'll tell you what, Doc, it ain't always as easy as it seems because why? When you have your own business, there's no first and 15th paycheck. Absolutely. You got to generate that revenue. And when things get slow, there's no way to turn. Right. So you got to be able to take that on and you got to be okay and confident enough and have enough resourcefulness and connectivity to figure things out. And, you know, you've been a part of it. Other people have been a part of the blessing. And, you know, the thing is, I've been blessed to be able to do that. And to be totally honest, and this is another discussion you and I've had. If I didn't invest so much into what I do at the Odyssey Project into the black community, my family and I, we'd be living the way I was living before I turned away from it all. Mm. When I decided I'm going all in for my people, I funded all of that. And for years, outside of you, a couple of other people who have been on, I don't even know if Erlene is on here. Erlene has been a supporter for years. She gives me the business. Lord, she gives me the business. But she's been a consistent supporter for years. But in all of that, still, I've been doing this for almost 20 years and barely have raised a little over $10,000. So who's funding all these programs, Doc? Yeah, we talk about that all the time, man. And that's, you know, it's very tough in our community, man. We have to be able to tell the difference between those that have a genuine uh, love for our people and then. Uh, that have programs that actually uh, look at solving problems uh, because, you know, we've talked about that before with the non-for-profits. A lot of non-for-profits are around 
simply for the business of being a not-for-profit. They have no vested interest in actually solving the problem. And that's the first thing you got to look at. Some Anybody like you uh, and, and some others that are willing to put up your own money and you funded your own programs for over 20 years, obviously you're doing something, you're doing something right and uh, you, you, you're getting the results. That's what we have to look at. We have to support uh, more programs like yourself and even uh, Alt Black News, uh, Nyota, Arua. We got to support people like her that, uh, that uh, can, can get us a, an independent voice and, and build the black media that we need in order to battle, you know, in order to battle in, 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 the, in the public square about these issues that we're talking about. Right. So, and, uh, and I think that uh, they made some very, uh, uh, a good point. Somebody else, I'm going to put this up here too. And the messy gets the money. Lori, I would like you to drop in and kind of get some clarification on that because I could go somewhere with that. You know, the messy gets the money. And one thing when I hear that term, and I hope she really actually comes back and, and clarifies it. But when I hear that term, I think about the people who come on, don't really bring any substance, but sit up and, and, and have a bunch of trash out there and gossiping and talking about all this and all that. They got hundred thousands of followers. They got all kinds of stuff that they're selling and moving and they're financing crap. Mm-hmm. Not going to call any names, but, but, uh, if you stay on this stuff and you pay attention, you know who I'm talking about. They're out there and they got the T on everybody. But nobody's talking about lifting the black community. Right. The ones who are, aren't getting any real true traction. You got a few people who done did good. Tyreek Nasheed, you know, with with uh, uh, his, his film uh, series. Uh, Dr. Watkins is definitely doing his thing, but a lot of that is coming from uh, what he's able to create and in, in, in basically market to a following. And he came in with a marketing program. Right. He came in with a little program of how he was going to do things. He's running his stuff specifically solely like a business. I get that. And I think it's a, it's a good model, especially for what he's doing because he's teaching about finance specifically. Absolutely. Uh, Good business, man. Here she is. I want to put this up. She says, certain YouTubers who are messy get the biggest donations. We are the messiest people ever. And that's exactly what the point I was making is those people who tend to keep up all the stuff stirred up. They flock to those channels. You go to them and there are people, man, and you're going, they got this many followers. Right. Uh, and you know, and and, and 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 like I I normally stay out of that no matter how I feel about it, because that's a lot of energy. Yeah. And my whole thing is if I if I if if I don't have to, my whole thing is we do enough fighting each other for them, right? right. That I don't want to go picking fighting fights with my people. So unless I just really see you like, you know, I don't went after Steve Harvey. I don't went after Jason Whitlock. I don't because to me, they completely done sold out. They they right. they done stood up and told us to our face. They don't give a damn what we think. Right. So they got us to get them to a certain point. Then they jumped over to the other side. And, oh, I'm calling you out. 
because no, now I don't see you as a part of the community. But my people, I'm more likely to pick up the phone. And there's some people I've had some issues with. And I've picked up the phone and called them and said, hey, what's going on? And pulled up hotel to something or told them how I feel. And we had our exchange. Sometimes they say, man, you know what? I didn't even see it that way. You know, I, I get it. Thank you. Sometimes they tell me to kiss their ass. But it never came out because to me, that's not what I want my channel to be about. It's right. beefing and all that. Don't mean I'm going to sit up and be, you know, you, you're going to walk on me. Because, you know, I know how to, and, and anybody that's been around know I know how to handle myself, but that's not why I, I want to spend my time doing what I do. I've spent 30 years making myself aware, training myself, preparing myself, studying, doing research, reading research, critiquing and peer reviewing research, just like you have, so that I can understand the problem and I can offer a solution. That's what I've been doing for years, is sitting up and gaining an understanding and then offering a solution. And so what we've got to do is understand, like, like Lori sits it up and said, she's absolutely right. Why do we flock to low frequency crap that doesn't serve what, like you said, doesn't serve the interests of the community? We are so caught up in being entertained and being messy. We want the tea. We want to talk about somebody. How about helping somebody? And so that that's the thing that it, it really gets to me is where, where we go. And like even one of the conversations we had and we talked about doing this is that we can't really bring it to them too heavy. They don't want to hear it. Right. You know, and should, should, should that be the case? I mean, I don't you know, my, my thing is. We are so worried about being entertained. That learning has become bored. And for me, learning is the most exciting thing that I encounter every day. Absolutely. I get giddy about learning something new because when I learn something new, it expands me. It expands my capacity to perform and be the best husband, the best father, the best person in the community, the best business, business leader, the best boss. It, it requires me to learn, but so many people don't want to learn. That they they don't want to learn. They don't want to grasp. And like, you know, I've gotten to the point now, man, where I really want to be able to do what I'm doing. I have uh, I see some people are actually uh, chiming in from overseas. I have clients in the UK and they are of meager means. Right. And I've gone out of my way to service them because of what they're dealing with. And, and, and it's more than one family. And I'm talking families where I'm literally working with more than one person in a household. Right, right. For basically a little or nothing. And the thing is, they have what they have. And when a person sits up and says, I don't have but this, but you can have it. My family needs you. What am I going to do? Right. But the thing is, the thing is, we could actually fund that. Right. Where we could do healing. You see, if we don't heal, we don't get rid of the toxicity and we carry the trauma into the next generation, both in our behavior and even genetically. You know, I've done a great deal of research on epigenetics yep. and I wrote the impact of that and how it has epigenetics impact psychology. And I've written on that. You know, so that that's my thing, man, is that we've got to find another way. And I'm hoping that this show is going to be 
that type of thing. Now, what I want you guys to get ready for is uh, I'm about to turn this over to Doc to let him kind of close out the loop on this topic. And then we're going to be taking questions on the chat. So if you have a question to ask the last 10 minutes of the show, we're going to answer about three or four questions. So if you have a question you want to ask either one of us, go ahead and uh, ask the question. And to the best of our ability, we'll answer it. Uh, if it's disrespectful or anything like that, we won't address it. We won't even acknowledge that it's there. We'll keep moving. Uh, but real true questions about the community, bring them on. So, Doc, you can go ahead and close out this whole uh, feminization of the black man and the destruction of the black family. And I just, think that, I just think that, Doc, we have to get in a position to where we have a unified agenda with benchmarks, goals, uh, to measure our progress uh, in the areas of wealth and health and education. And I think that's where the solution resides, even with the, uh, you know, feminization of black male image. That is, is, is just one of the things that we have to fight against. And so that has to be uh, also included in the, uh, in the agenda that we have. And so leading into the uh, Ask Doc uh, portion of the show. Do we have any? Uh, we have any questions? Uh, hold on. I'm trying to go. Oh, I missed something. Empowered women says in the schools often uh, male energy is perceived as negative, and your male child will be given a negative diagnosis just for being masculine. Uh, uh, that's not a question, but a, a lot of people yeah, like I agree it. with what she's saying. You know, working in the school system now myself, you yeah. know, as well as I do, if we look at the statistics, you know, uh, black males can make up a, a, a 20 percent of a school. And yet uh, when we look at the disciplinary uh, uh, matrix, they're making up almost 70 percent of the disciplinary actions. So right. uh, what she's saying can be. Uh, definitely quantified by the statistics. And I don't care what school system you go to. It can be any school system and you'll find uh, black males make up the, the greater part of uh, disciplinary uh, actions in school systems. Okay. And I will, I will go even further that, and I've written on this in a position paper that uh, addressed the disproportionality of special education referrals as it pertains to young black males specifically. Um, I've wrote in it in The Miseducation of Black Youth, which is my 16th book. I also wrote in it uh, in uh, Academic Apartheid, which was my 24th book. And uh, our children are being labeled as a, uh, as oppositionally defiant, uh, attention deficit, hyperactive disorder, uh, learning disabled, and a bunch of others. And a great deal of it is literally at as early as five years old, you have white middle-aged teachers who make up a large proportion of the teacher population who are intimidated by young black males as early as five years old. Absolutely. And they literally will find any reason to refer them out of the classroom. So if I can get you in a special, edu special education classroom, here is what's going on. The other thing that we have to be careful of, and I want to warn black parents of this, is one of the reason one of the ways that they literally sit down and actually get you to sign along. Now remember, they cannot assign your child to special education without your approval. They can't give them an IEP without your approval. 
Here's the problem. What they do to get you to uh, approve them giving them an IEP is they show you all the benefits your child can get as being learning disabled as far as the, the benefits you can get from the government in the way of checks and other, mm-hmm. other, other stipends and things of that nature. And if you're coming from a meager, uh, you know, from meager uh, means, then you see that child. Now, what you got to understand is the last thing you need to do is do what the school district is already doing is see your child as a paycheck, because that's what your child is to the system, regardless of how they label them. The average student is worth eight thousand dollars to a school district, eight thousand dollars a year. Here's the crazy thing. If they can get an uh a special education label, an IEP that says they need special uh, account, uh, you know, special uh, means and services and things to help them learn, uh, i.e. special education, they get double. Mm-hmm. And in some districts, triple what they get for the average student. So they are a paycheck. Now, here's the thing. Most of these schools aren't turning around and taking that and actually investing back in the child. A lot of that is redirected. The school principal in most districts has the power to appropriate those funds assigned to the school. A lot of that's going to the band and the football team. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening. So it's not even going to your kid. But here's the problem. It's easy to get your kid under that label. It's hard getting them from underneath it. Absolutely. And you got to be aware of that. And the the truth of the matter is, in many instances, these kids aren't oppositionally defiant. They're masculine. They aren't suffering from ADHD, any kid five years old isn't going to be still in a natural, normal environment. Kids don't learn at the, at the, at the height of their capacity being still. Kids learn by moving around. That's why when you find people who are now incorporating music, movement, and hand movement, and even beating on desks to learn equations and mathematical uh, 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 laws are actually excelling. Why? Because that's how kids learn. Kids learn through moving and observing and experiencing, not sitting still. It's not normally natural for a five-year-old to sit still for hours on end. So when you sit up and he's seeing that, he's not being oppositionally defiant. He's being himself. Plus, if you've got the large portion of your teacher population being white, middle-aged women, guess what they don't have awareness of? Black home culture. Absolutely. So they can't understand where this child is coming from. What the child is going through. That's why the greatest asset in school right now at current is the black female teacher. Why? Because the black male teacher is almost non-existent. Absolutely. And I'll let Dr. Um, uh, Dr. Blanchard close this out because this is literally his area of expertise. This is where he did his research in his doctorate is in uh, student persistence and wraparound services. And you could talk about the importance of understanding uh, that. Yeah. I mean, you hear me say all the time about uh, that the best teachers uh, for any any ethnicity or race of kids is someone that shares their lived experiences, their culture, you know, and, and, and everything like that. Their lineage. That's very important, you know, because you can make the connection and you can develop the right pedagogy to uh, teach the child. in, And that and that's what we're missing. As you said, we have very few black teachers, very few black administrators. Uh, nationwide. And, uh, you know, I hope that one day we will uh, eventually start our own schools, but that's another whole conversation. But, uh, but yeah, we have to get into the, to the place where we have more black teachers, uh, black male teachers that can reach our kids because that, that, that's what's going on right now. 
they're 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 not able to connect. The teachers that are there are not able to connect with them, and they don't have the right pedagogy for our kids to learn. Okay, can you see the question on the screen, Doc? I do. What what do you suggest, parents? School versus homeschool. Are you wise parents? Um, so you got a two-parter. Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 a proponent of of uh, homeschooling. Um, I've had friends that have uh, homeschooled their kids, and so I'm a proponent of it. I mean, it's something that you you should try. It it, it can be done. I mean, when you look at the actual day, uh, teachers spend so much time redirecting because teachers have. Uh, all kinds of responsibilities, including security responsibilities uh, and all of that. That And and also, as you said, Doc, we have uh, special ed as well as developmentally disabled kids in the classrooms. That takes away from the teacher's ability to control the class and to get the most instructional hours in during that time. So actually, by homeschooling, you probably will get more uh, instructional time with your child than even the teacher does at school because that teacher may have 30 kids in the class. Now, keep in mind, nationally, we're, we're uh, low on the number of teachers. So that means that you have a lot of teachers that are doubling up, that they might not have 30 kids. They might have 60 kids in the class. They might have 50 kids in the class. Based on teachers marking off sick, you have COVID. Teachers are out on COVID leave. So, you know, you're seeing a lot of stress and strain in the schools uh, because we're short, we're short on uh, security, we're short on bus drivers, and we're short on teachers. And all that provides a whole lot more stress along with COVID and everything else. So I would say look into to doing homeschooling. Uh, your child will actually do better. I've seen statistics where the child actually does better uh, by, by the, the, the parent homeschooling if you have that ability to do that. Uh, I would I would add to that as a parent who has actually homeschooled uh, that there are definitely some benefits to it. It definitely requires a sacrifice and an investment. But you have to understand it's actually a more natural way of educating your kid. First of all, you have to see education as something beyond the attainment of academic skills to truly understand what education is. Education is not simply the attainment of academic skills. That's a system created to benefit the industrialized world. Education is actually the preparation and empowerment of an individual to be able to go out into the world as an adult and face the natural uh, pushback. And in the case of blacks, to face an environment in which that is inherently hostile towards them and not only compete, but win. And I have done that. And I'm telling you that I became a part of a community our, uh, where everybody was homeschooling. We had a community. Our kids went on field trips together. Uh, we we took educational trips. We we took uh, getaway trips, break you know break trips together. Uh, it's definitely a sacrifice because you got to put time and energy in. And if you are a full time worker or full time business worker, it's difficult, but it can be done. And the benefits are, on average, the homeschool kid is normally two to three grade uh, levels above where they would be if they was in school. Uh, to the second part of that question, whether you advise one parent as a weight and the other parent has not quite seen the light. Uh, you got to be very careful in that. That normally happens. Very rarely do you get a situation where both individuals are awakened at the exact same rate. Uh, it no doesn't normally happen that way. 
what normally happens is one person is a little bit ahead of the curve. And what you have to always remember, I think Malcolm, brother Malcolm taught that. He says, when, remember that you were all, you didn't always know what you knew. Remember that you, you weren't always where you were. You've got to be patient with someone. You've got to keep opening up and showing them. But don't, when you show them something that's proving your point, don't be a, don't do it in a, I told you so way. Kind of do it in a real gradual way. Let them see it. Keep moving. But eventually they're going to be able to see it if you do it in love. I'm telling you really, truly love. I'm not talking about romance. I'm talking about the kind of love that offers respect, understanding, and support that says we don't have to always be here. We're going to get there together. And I just thought you should be able to look at this. What do you think about it? Tell me what you think about it. I'll tell you what I think about it. Give them room to have their opinion. You have your opinion. And if necessary, bring in a mediator. I literally do this. I literally sit up and I work with people who are at odds about how to parent. And you find you find mid-ground. And then eventually over time, you hear someone else talking about it. And you start to see things differently. A lot of times people are resisting things just because it's coming from the partner and they may, they think they know everything, you, you know, and once a person gets that mindset, they stop hearing what you're saying and they start preparing themselves for war. You know, okay. If, if, if he or she comes this way, I'm coming back like that. So now you're not listening to understand you're listening to rebut and you get nothing out of that, but a constant disagreement. So I would say be very understanding, be be aware of where they're at, and, and give a person a chance to be human. Again, none of us are machines, so we don't learn at the same way. We don't uh, come. You can be exposed to the same thing and still not get it at the same rate. Uh, and so you have to be aware of that. So uh, I would really, truly uh, give a great deal of consideration. We homeschooled our kids, and then it got to the point where they felt like they were missing something because a lot of their friends were still in. But when we put them back in, we put them back in. They were so far ahead of everyone else that it put on. Another thing is if you can afford it, uh, find a school that you, and more than likely this will probably be a private school because public schools are not designed to educate. They are designed to indoctrinate. You have to find a school like a private school. It may be an Episcopal school, a Catholic school, depending on what your personal values are. Find a school that has a value system first before you look at their curriculum. And then it's probably going to be a private school. You're going to probably have to either come up with tuition or find a scholarship or whatever. But that's a different way of educating your kid. And if nothing else, they're going to be exposed to a higher level of learning than the average public school kid. Uh, and they get to benefit apart from the system. Again, if you're going to be a part of the system, play the game the way the system is being played. Now, if you're going to be out there and a part of the system is playing the education game, uh, Doc, I tell you, the biggest part of education isn't the degree. It's the connectivity. It's the, the ability to say, I am an alumni of. I attended and went to, and to be able to make those connectives, play the game. So getting them in a private school gives them a connectivity to an alumni that's much stronger than the average public school alumni. And they're going to have, just by the uh, by the sure nature of it, probably have fared well in the world and can be and will be in a position to offer better opportunities to your child once your child graduates. And it will increase their rights if they want to take the academic route after high school. 
it's going to open up doors for them to do that as well. Those are just some options that you have at your disposal. But what you cannot do is easily fold into the idea that, okay, this is what's going on with your child. We suggest that we give him an IEP. We can help him along and we, you know, and just sign right here and you go, oh, well, okay. And then I'm, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to get a check from the government. No, 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 no. We have sold out for those checks far too long. Uh, and what it does is it locks you into something that is so hard to get out of because it becomes a part of your permanent record. And when you get when you find out, you, you do you know that I have clients right now and I've had clients. Uh, I think the first one I ran into was probably in 2012, right before I met you, Doc, that constantly referred to themselves as being as being intellectually challenged because that's what they were told their whole life. Uh, they were a part of special education or they were in an IEP or whatever. And so they literally identified with it and their performance was based off of them believing they couldn't. And then, but I'm dealing with them. I don't see the, the inferiority. I don't see the intellectual challenge. I don't see it. And I'm talking to you. And so I put it back. I said, you're not living your truth. You're living someone else's assessment. Mm -hmm. And so let's step from underneath that and look at what you're capable of. Then turn them loose. But see, that's just it. A lot of this is, especially when it happens to black men, I'm going to cripple you before you ever get started. Here's the other part of that. And then I'm going to let you close it out, Doc. Here's the other part of this uh, whole thing. When you start telling a kid that, see now, especially when you start talking about uh, diagnosing a kid with oppositional divine disorder or ADHD, why? Because now I can medicate that. So now I'm getting big pushes. I'm getting, uh, I'm getting uh, rewards from big pharma. I'm getting, I'm getting laced by big pharma because now I'm pushing their drugs and literally the school is becoming like hospitals. The school districts are becoming like hospitals. Why? Because they got school psychiatrists now that are prescribing this stuff. And so now that's another channel of income that's coming. This That's not the biggest part, though. When you sit up and you allow your son to be labeled like that, and now they're pumping drugs into him to keep them docile and keep them seated, but they don't like the way it makes them feel, and they don't like the fact that they are being labeled a certain way because of certain things, they become alienated in the educational process long before they get anywhere close to graduating, increasing their risk of dropping out as soon as they get old enough to make that move. And then guess what happens when they drop out? They increase their risk of becoming incarcerated. Uh, kids who don't complete high school are five times more likely to be incarcerated than kids that do. Just high school. So if they can force your kid out, that's what you call the school and prison pipeline. And so you have to be very, very, very careful about how you allow them to manage your kid. Doc, I'll let you close that out. And then we, we're going we're gonna to jump off here for No, just briefly, you, you pretty much hit the nail on the head with everything. I, as you know, uh, for five years, I was in uh, adult protective services as an investigator in uh, Indiana. And I saw the same thing. There is a labeling uh, by the state as well. You get money from the state as well, you know when you're labeled uh, developmentally disabled. So I did see that uh, people that I investigated who were 18 years and above, I saw that it started when I looked at their history, I looked at, at the fact that it started, the labeling started with the IEP and then went to the state and they were classified as developmentally disabled. And the parent, like you said, uh, actually worked not to bring that child out of that, uh, out of that uh, labeling. Because like you said, they're getting a check. 
and that check is coming from the state and that check will will continue to 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 come to them even in their early 20s it will come to them so like you said when you have a family that is struggling uh and it, you know i've had situations where uh three or four or five family members are surviving off the checks from those particular individuals so it, it becomes a, a a slippery slope and you know uh where you're not really working to uh to improve the quality of life of those individuals you want them to stay uh in that in that in that situation so that you can get that check uh miss miss lovelace uh, uh said something that is real powerful parents must be educated on how to advocate for their child I'm 100% on that. I don't think that most kids understand how, and matter of fact, I know for a fact, most parents don't understand how to advocate for their child. You can see it in their frustration uh, in how they uh, get when something isn't going uh, the way that they feel they should go. I believe that that's something that we need to do. Uh, yourself and I and others is develop programs where we can actually train parents how to advocate for their kids. There are certain things you need to understand and certain things you should know. There are certain things you can be visible. Uh, one thing that uh, having worked through the academic process the way I have is I know how to communicate with teachers uh, and I'm not intimidated. See, one of the problems that most parents have, especially in the black community, is they're walking into an environment where uh, statistically speaking, the person they're going to be talking to is more educated than they are. So they feel intimidated. And the moment you start to communicate, the level of communication is different. So the vernacular is different, the level of communication, and they're normally going to use a vernacular that you're not familiar with. Why? To confuse you, to make you feel inferior, and you cannot allow that to happen. You have to understand one thing as a parent, first and foremost, it's your child and you have the right to make the decisions for your child, and no one has the right to override it. Absolutely. And so that's the first thing. Then you have a right to speak up on your child's behalf as long as they're a minor. You don't need permission to do it. And so uh, principals uh, all the way up to, I mean, teachers, principals, and all the way up to uh, district uh, district. Uh, members on the uh the board the board uh for the district have have heard from me they've gotten phone calls from me they got emails from me and they will get a drop-in visit from me and again because i can relate and i'm on the level probably more educated than most of them that i ever come in contact with they can't intimidate me on that level so they try to make it like okay you're in our space no I pay taxes. I have a right to be here. And so that doesn't intimidate me. And they, they very soon realize that I understand my rights and that I'm not intimidated by them. Call, call you know, call security. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to use my platform to highlight the bull crap that you're doing. And there's always something that, that there's this new rise and no matter how you feel about the guy, he told you this was going to happen seven, eight years ago. He told you that charter schools were going to replace the regular public schools. And that was Dr. Umar Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, a matter of fact, I will go ahead and I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. I don't have a problem speaking the truth. Uh, while I don't agree with everything Brud does, uh, there are a couple of things that I've watched him do, a couple of things he's actually helped me do. One thing is I have sent parents 
who have kids with IEPs that they can't get anything done, and he's helped them. I can say that for a fact. I've watched that. But the thing you have to understand is when you sit up and you invite that in, it's real hard to get away from it. And so you got to understand that they lock you in and there's so many other things that go with it. And the problem is if you actually were involved, and this is the part where a lot of people might not like me because I'm about to get real with you. If you really get involved with your kid, you know how your kid learns. That's one thing that I prided myself in is understanding the individuality of each of my kids. Mm -hmm. And I know they don't learn the same. I know each one is different. Nobody's going to take that time in a school environment for your one kid in their class. You got to do it. And then you got to contact that kid and says, this is how my son learns. Mm -hmm. You know, if you try this with him, it's probably not going to stick, but he does very well with that. And then you say, if there's a problem, this is my number. This is my email. Contact me and tell me exactly what the problem is. And we're going to fix it. Marion and I, we're in our kids' business so much they can't stand us right now. We know their work is due before they know their work is due. We know what their grades are on their progress reports before the progress reports come out. Why? That's how in tune we are with the teachers. Number one is it shows that we're not what they say we are because most of them believe black parents aren't engaged. So the first thing you got to do is become engaged. You got to be okay with not knowing. A lot of us aren't engaged because we are intimidated by the idea of not knowing what's going on and, and, and being made, being embarrassed. You got to be willing to be embarrassed for your babies until you get, get caught up in the curve. And when you get caught up in the curve, you start understanding how things go. Then you, all right, now let me get involved. Let me get involved. And so the thing is, you should know what your children are doing. You should know where they are at their grades. You should know what kind of relationship they have with their teacher. You should actually have a relationship with their teacher. You should have a relationship with their principal. When If something goes on and they end up in the principal's office, the principal should know who they are. Why? Because that's going to have a determining factor on how they dispose of whatever disciplinary action comes out of it. If they get into it with a teacher and they get sent, to the office and the principal has had a conversation with you that was so distinct that they remember it and they go okay your daddy is then they're gonna sit up and what i get like my, my 14 year old that he cut up for a while but what happened was i would get hey mr wallace hey i got i got you know i ain't gonna say my son's name but i have him in my office right now and his teacher said he did blah 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 and now normally what i would do is but i decided to give you a call do you want to talk to him Put phone. I'm like, dude, what are you up there doing? We already had this talk. Go back to the class, chill out. If there's a problem with the teacher, come home and tell me and I'll deal with it. Adult to an adult. We good? Yes, sir. All right, put it back on the phone. I said, you shouldn't have any problems anymore, but I'll be up there to talk to you tomorrow. And there it is. But if he, if he had not known who I was, if I hadn't made it a point to make him know me, my son would have went in there, he'd have been in sack for three days. Not in the classroom, in sack. So the whole deal is being willing to advocate, even if you don't know how to advocate, advocate. And then uh, the second part is learn how to communicate. Communication is huge. If you learn how to communicate, you the, the height of your frustration will diminish. 
A lot of parents aren't heard because you go in cursing because that's the only way you can express yourself because you haven't developed the ability to communicate. Develop the ability to communicate. If you're going to be in that world, you're going to have to communicate on that level. Learn how to do that. And then that's going to take away the frustration and it's going to disarm them because they expect you to come in throwing tantrums. So when you come in and you're able to communicate and articulate with understanding exactly what's going on and what you feel and what you need to have and see done, you've disarmed them because they want to be able to say, see, that's exactly why I don't deal with them. But when you come in and say, no, I can't go ahead, doc, you look like you got something on your mind. Oh, no, no. I'm just taking it all in, man. You hit, you hitting all the points. You're hitting everything, man. And, and so the thing is, you have to understand is they will not admit this, but the truth of the matter is this. For many of our kids, especially our young black males, the school system is a staging area for prison. And the few of us that make it out just make it out because we had the influences around us that pointed us in the right direction. We had parents in the home that had such an influence on us that we didn't bite on a bunch of the stuff that's dangled in front of us to trigger us to get us to do stuff that puts that disciplinary thing on your record. You get enough of those. Now you own, you ain't even in, in the elementary or you're in middle school, but your elementary re- record of passion, they, they treating you like you didn't already did it because of what you did before. And so what you got to understand is some of us, but far too many of us are getting tagged for things we shouldn't be tagged for because we're not involved enough as parents. So if I can get anything across, and this is going to be a theme for us because number one is, I'm big on the educational process. Two of the books I've, out of the 24 that I've written have been on educating our children. So it's a big fact. And another two deals with it at some point in the book. So out of, out of those books, four of those books talk about this in great detail. And so that's my passion. And then Dr. Blanche's passion is exactly that. That's what his area of expertise is at. So you're going to get a heavy dose of this as we move throughout uh this show uh, moving forward each week, you're probably going to hear something because that's what we want. We want to see us prosper in an environment that has been historically toxic to us. And man, these, I mean, some of the, uh, I don't know if you can see the chat. I, I can't. Uh, so we're going to have to work on it. It should be a way that you can see it. And maybe I didn't set it up in the beginning, but We'll, we'll get it to where you can be able to see the chat as well. Uh, but I'll make sure that happens next week. But uh, 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 Better Future says, I believe economic deprivation. Let me, matter of fact, just put it up here. So I believe economic deprivation has really allowed the system to take advantage of our community. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the key elements and components of being able to manipulate and control is economic deprivation. If I can control your environment, if I can push you into a conveyor of poverty, then I control how you move because you depend upon me. Right. Morpheus. Uh, more, uh, oh, I, I get it. Morpheus. Um, I'm going to put this up here so you can understand it. Uh, he says, it seems we just convince whites that we are intellectually sound. We must convince whites we are in our children's lives. Why? We shouldn't need the validation, attention, grade, or judgment of anyone. 
That sounds all good, except for when you're in a system that they control and the only way that you eat is to get a job that they provide. And until you can on a grand level, there are 33, 30, what? No, I take that back. I'm way off. There are 40 something, almost 50 million blacks in the, in the U.S. alone. There aren't 50 million black companies that can provide 50 million jobs to the people who are going to need them so we can sit up and say we don't need the white man. Sounds all good. But the reality of it is, if you're going to move in this world, you're going to have to some point be able to operate it. It's not about convincing white people or anything. It's about being actively involved in the situation that you have to be involved in. Number one is if you don't send your kids to school and you're not capable of homeschooling them, they'll lock you up. Then what you going to do? Well, I, at least I didn't show them that, that, that I didn't have to prove nothing to them. It's not about proving anything to anybody. It's about standing up and saying, if I've got to have my kid in front of you, know that you're going to have to deal with me. You know, I'm not about proving my intellectual capacity to anybody, but I'm going to show up and show you what you're dealing with if you're messing with mine. If you're dealing with mine, I'm going to deal with you. That's what that's about. It's not about trying to prove it. Until we get a system where we can literally realistically say we don't need them, you're going to have to learn to deal with them. And you're going to have to learn to deal with them in a way that protects you. This isn't about uh, all that. We can. I, it's real good to talk that. I've heard it talked a lot. But I'm a person that sit up and put 30 years of research into understanding this dilemma. I know everything from what they did from way back in, in Reconstruction through uh, black codes, through convict leasing, through redlining. I know what they've done to purposely put us in a place of economic deprivation so that they can control us. As long as we're in that place of economic deprivation, uh, you have a lot. You can, you can have all the knowledge in the world and you can have all the right ideas in the world, but you've got to have the capacity and the resources to make it happen. At the very least, if you're going to sit up and say you're autonomous, we know this from dealing with Sister Latavia, who we're going to have on here, that you got to have the land. If you don't got the land, you can talk all the noise you want. You can't grow nothing. You can't put nothing out there. You can't can't do anything. Then they sit up. You got to understand the situation. You can have your own land. And depending on where you at, you can't even harvest the rainwater that falls on that land. If it's anywhere near a water flow where they're sitting up saying that you harvesting that water is inter interfering with the flow of that water or the feeding of a lake, they can sit up and block you from harvesting water that falls on your own property. I know a person that's in prison right now. He ain't a black person either. That refused to stop harvesting water on his land. They locked him up. But you got to understand this. If you're going to play that game of being uh, self-sufficient, then you got to be able to do it. Then you got to sit up and say this. If I'm going to be a black business owner and I'm going to talk about I ain't got to show the white man nothing, I ain't got to deal with the white man, then you got to have a business that can literally be sustained by nothing but black dollars. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's so much to this that people don't think about. I can talk that game all day, but I can tell you this. It's hard to sustain a black business solely on black dollars. Trust me on that. So if, if, if I can't sustain the business solely on black dollars, I'm going to have to learn how to get their dollars too. Now, what I do with their dollars when I get it is what makes me what pro-black or anti-black is am I getting that money and going out and buying fancy jewelry? Am I getting that money going out buying a fly whip? And I getting that money and doing all those things? Because all I'm doing is recycling that money back to them that they paid me. 
Absolutely. I'm literally financing the demise of my people by financing the system. But now if I go out and I have a business and they come to me and they pay me and they do. And I sit up and I turn around and I put it back in my company or my organization, the Odyssey Project, to fund and, and help my black people. Then I'm cycling into something I believe in that supports my people. You got to be they they are steady snatching dollars out of the black community. And to be totally honest, the only way you're going to close that wealth gap is you're going to have to be willing to take white dollars. Now, you got to control how you take them. I don't want your sponsorships. I don't want your grants or anything like that, because that comes with stipulation. But if you come pay me for a service, once I get it, that's my money. I can do what I want to with it. That's what they do to us every time they set up a station, an Arab station, a, a, a Jewish grocery store, a, 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 a Korean or a, 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 a Vietnamese nail shop, a beauty supply store. They're ciphering money out of the community, community that they're never bringing back. Find something that you can do that they like and go get some of that money back. That's the only way you're going to get it back in the black community. And because the, a large percentage of the, the, the median wealth, I mean, the median uh, salary household, the median household salary in, 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 in the black community is 37,000. 37.5 or something like that. You can't win with that. So that means that the, 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 the black, the average black family can't support you enough that you can live solely off black dollars. I, I, I get that. What I'm saying is, let me put it up here because I want to be fair to him in, in what I'm presenting. He's saying who... Who who approves the loans, financial aid, scholarships? Who dictates where you live? I'm in no way right. Actually, you're making the point. They control all of that. If you're going to get out of that situation, you're going to have to learn to manipulate through it because there's no other way out of it. If it's going to require money, we don't have enough of it. They like to point to that 1.3 trillion. And it sounds great until you realize that 1.3 trillion annual buying power and it depends on how you actually look at that, whether it's really truly buying power or not. Right. That's a whole nother argument I'm not going to get into. But let's just say there is $1.3 trillion in buying power. That sounds great. Then they make the argument. That's more money than that would make us if we were a nation, the ninth wealthiest nation in the world. But this is what they don't tell you. Money is only power in relationship to what other people have in the way of money. So you can have a million dollars, but if everybody you're competing against to try to make a move in the world has a hundred million, your million means jack. So when you look at the 1.3 million, 1.4, I mean, 1.3 trillion, 1.4 trillion that they're talking about, it, it means absolutely nothing in an economy that's a $105 trillion a year economy. That you, you, it, because if it was that powerful, you wouldn't have a wealth gap that white people are sitting at a median household wealth of 144,000 uh, median and you're sitting at under 10. You, you wouldn't have that. You will actually be doing what the Asians are doing. Asians are closing the wealth gap between them and whites. They are already the highest earners in the country. They are the highest median salary uh, or income in the country above whites, Asians. And they're in the high 90s. They uh, shoot. Eight years ago, they were in the low 90s. They are in the high 90s and they're closing the wealth gap because they have a mechanism of what they're doing. But they're operating in the same system. They didn't come over here and say, we're not dealing with white folks. We're going to come over here and learn the system and then we're going to use the system to our behalf. And a part of the system was what? 
exploiting black people. Mm-hmm. That's the blueprint for everybody who comes over here, set up in the black neighborhood. They'll buy from you. And so what we have to understand is how do we combat that? How do we combat that? What I would love to see are black schools. I mean, black owned, black operated, everybody in the school, black, everybody back, black dollars, black principals, black teachers, a bunch of black male teachers, because we need that presence. We need that masculine energy. We need that in the school. We need to see black positive black men because all the media is going to show you are the the dredges of black society if you pay attention to the media you would think all black men lazy all black men abandon their kids all black men are criminal minded why because that's the image they're purporting and the thing is it doesn't just it doesn't just present and create the situation of how we're viewed it impacts how we view ourselves you have to look at what's being put out there. Actually, uh, I'm going to address this then, then Doc. I'm going to let you say what you guys say, and we're going to end because we could do this out there. It says it's not that they're putting their businesses in black predominant communities. The fact is that they're putting their businesses in places where they know that they are requested or needed. Uh, that's true and not true. They are purposely putting those businesses in black communities because the blueprint has been since the Jews financed the civil rights movement and bought black businesses so that blacks could now patronize white businesses, which was integration. The blueprint has always been put up because what what the Jews did was this. They financed the civil rights movement. Most people don't realize that. But the NAACP founded by Jews. The financing of the movement, the money, the bulk of the money, money came from Jews. Mm-hmm. And what did they do? They said, okay, if you're going to be sitting up fighting to integrate, to eat at white restaurants, to, to watch movies at white theaters, to ride in white cabs and buses, you don't need that black bus company. You don't need that black grocery store. You don't need that black shoe store. They were buying it up from us. And we were taking the money because, I mean, we're looking at the cash liquidation factor. And that we now we're going to spend the money in white places. But what we found out is even after we did all that and, and the law said that they could not stop us from coming in for black, they still didn't want to deal with us. And then when we tried to come back to our community, now we're not buying from our own. We're buying from the people who bought up. At one point, Jews own all the stuff that are now owned by Arabs and Asians. If you're old enough, you know what I'm ta- know what I'm talking about. They own all that. And then what happened? They sit up and started investing in media. They invested in the diamond industry. They invested in the accounting industry. Look at the industry that they dominate. They invested that. A lot of that was funded by black dollars. They invested in us by funding us and then buying our businesses from us. They won. Then they passed on the blueprint to Arabs and Asians. And so they come over here knowing I can set up in this community and they will buy because they don't have their own outlet. They don't have the ability to supply their own needs. They don't own all of this stuff. So yes, that's where it's needed. But the thing is, they won't go set up anywhere. It's needed in a bunch of places, but see, it's, it's, it's controlled different in any other community. 
but because I, I want access to gas, I want access to grocery store. But I tell you what, there's a certain change you won't even find in a black black neighborhood. They feel we're beneath them. If it gets too black, they'll literally shut it down and move. But then there are those that are set up and literally treat you like trash. And you're still coming in and buying. And that's the reason why in every other community, their dollar is bouncing at least, what, seven or eight times? In Jewish communities, 17 times. In Asian communities, like 12 times. It doesn't bounce at all in the black community. Within six hours of a person cashing that check, their money has already gone out to someone outside of the black community. Why? Because they're literally set up in your community. You cash it. They right there waiting on you, right by your house. You're going to stop and get you a beer from the corner store. You're going to get you some gas from Habib's. You're going to go get your nail done at Souffons. You're going to go on and on down the line. And before you know it, you've done everything you do. Your, your check, which isn't that big, because it was that big, we know where we're going. As soon as we get a little money, we're gone anyway. The idea of building in that community isn't how we're thinking. We're thinking, now I want to go stay where they think, where they stand at. So the people that are left behind to deal with this are the people who are least uh, empowered to do something about it. And yes, we do need to start invest. Doc, close me out, man, because I'll keep going. Well, Doc, I want to thank you and everybody for joining us on The Teachers, and we will see you next week at the same time. And we're out.